Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. You're your host. Happy holidays, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. We are approaching the new year. This is the last episode of 2022. As always, my name is Josh, and with me is my loyal co-host. I'm Andrew. And there's no guest today. (laughs) (laughs) Just you and me, buddy. You and me. (laughs) It's not that we couldn't find one. It's that we have a lot to talk about in this episode, so why bother jamming a guest in with it? Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of what we decided to do with this, because we're going to be talking about PAX Unplugged today, which is the convention that just happened the beginning of December, and, you know, lots of people do kind of a convention wrap-up of what they saw, what they like to play, and, you know, we try to differentiate ourselves a little bit from other podcasts, but we had such a good time at PAX playing games together, we couldn't really help ourselves. We want to talk about PAX, the city, the games, and give you guys a rundown of what we thought the whole convention was. Yeah, agreed. And there was a lot to see, and it was my first time going, and I was impressed. They did a good job. You know, PAX Unplugged is a a really great convention. So listeners, usually we have a setup. We go into a pre-launch. We have, you know, those procedures. We have a dive. We have, you know, the resurfacing aspect. We're not going to do much of that today. We're going to go straight into basically a dive of PAX Unplugged, and we're going to talk about a whole sleuth of games that we played. And then we're just going to end it after that. It's going to be a pretty chill episode, going to be very different, but don't worry, our next episode will be back straight to the normal format, have great stories, great creatives on, it's going to be awesome. So, PAX Unplugged. PAX Unplugged is a convention that takes place in Philadelphia, usually around the end of the year. It's one of the bigger... I think it might be the second biggest convention. I think it's over. Is it third now? Is it still third behind Origins? I think it's third behind Origins, yeah. Okay, because I've been hearing some things that they're predicting that in maybe a couple years it might surpass Origins. It's very which would be That'd be crazy if that happened. Well, anyways, Philadelphia is a great city to have it in. Um, Philly, I spent a couple uh, months of my life living in Philadelphia. It's a great city. You know, it has its ups and downs like most major cities do, but I think it's actually a really good spot to have a convention. There is a lot of places to, you know, take up residency. The Philadelphia Convention Center is huge, and there is a ton of great food in in Philly. Like, right next to the convention is the Reading Terminal Market. Did you get a chance to go to that one? Oh, yeah. I stand in line for an hour and a half for a Philly cheesesteak. Yeah, I did. It It was an overwhelming and cool experience, but also... You don't want to be there at noon. Like that's not the spot oh, to be. Yeah, no, heck, no. It is so so busy noon. Like the, the Writing Terminal Market is basically a collection of stores. If you've been to Origins before, if you're a listener, there's like the North Market that's right across the street from the Convention Center. It's like that, but triple the size of North Market and a great swoop of options. And all the food there is very very good. But yeah. Like Andrew said, if you're going there at noon, it is like standing room only, and Mm -hmm. you're going to be waiting in line for the more popular places for a very long time. How was your cheesesteak, though? Eh, it was okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The best cheesesteaks in Philly aren't going to be in in Center City. you got to go to, like, the ghettos up north and south. And I understood that, but I also wasn't going to jump in a taxi to go get a a cheesesteak, so I decided to just try it while I was there. 
Yeah, I, I didn't. I waited till actually I was leaving Philadelphia to actually pick up my favorite cheesesteak spot, Gooey Louis, mm. which they they serve like it's like a pound and a half cheesesteak, and it was glorious. Reminded me of my time living there. Fantastic, but overall, I do think that Pax is a great location. Yeah, in Philadelphia, they have Chinatown right next to it. There's lots of really good food there. You can get like classic. American Chinese food if you want. But then if you go a little bit deeper, there's like authentic Chinese food just around the corner. So I honestly love PAX. How do you feel about the convention as a whole? I thought it was a good location, actually. And I liked the number of different hotels that were options around it. Um, The walking distance, I actually stayed about six blocks away and it was a 20 minute walk. And I was fine with it. I got to look at all the cool statues and walk through Rittenhouse Square and be able oh, to see nice. the, the Freedom Tower and stuff like that. And so I really kind of just enjoyed a little sightseeing as well as the convention itself. Yeah, that was that was my experience. I stared at an Airbnb right about probably like five or six blocks away like you did, right across Vine Street. And it was great. Like I got to walk the streets. It reminded me of my time living there and doing all my walking around the city. It was – it's great. I mean I loved walking through Chinatown and smelling – all the wonderful food. I got to see like the markets where they put all the food out just in front and people are just picking through and going in and paying for it. It's just, it's my vibe. It really is. I love city life. I'm, I'm an urban dude, even though I live in the South in the country and I'm a, a beach <laughs> bum at heart. I love doing the urban sprawl type stuff. So that's why I really enjoy going to PAX. But that's enough about the city. Let's talk about the actual convention and the games we played at it. So I spent a lot of my time at boardgametables.com, which is now all play. If you got that email, did you uh, did you hear that announcement? I did not. So go ahead and break it to our audience. Okay, so board game tables, boardgamestable.com is a great publisher. They make board game tables, bags, lots of different great games. Well, they are switching their brand. They are instead of, instead of boardgamestable.com as the publisher creator stuff, they're going to be all play. Which, um, after reading an email that they sent out, why they chose that name, I actually think it fits very well into what they do as a company. They make games that anybody can play. So if you like enjoy a heavier strategy or think your game, you can sit down and play and have that experience. If you're new to gaming, you want something easy to onboard, you can have that experience as well. I think they really accomplished that idea of... You know, trying to make sure gamers and non-gamers like can sit down and play their games and have a fulfilling experience. Now, I think that represents the idea well. Maybe, maybe not the most memorable name, but <laughs> I understand why they chose it. Anyways, I spent most of my time at BoardGamesTable.com, now going to be called AllPlay. I love working for them. They are absolutely awesome. I had, there's a bunch of people there who are super nice. Katie kind of runs the entire thing. She is awesome with her volunteers. They give you lunch. They make sure you take care of and have water. Um, Joe, who's kind of the man in charge there, he is very good business sense when it comes to board games. He's very nice to designers who come up and talk to him, but he also says very professional. It's just a good environment to be around. Plus, all the volunteers are supporting each other, and there's a good amount of us walking around. It, it's awesome. If, if It's one of my favorite places to be during the convention. I was just going to go in a second that I actually like the way they set up. I think it's great to have the little tables spread out with space in between. People can just pop in and look at a specific game and each table has a specific game and they're all different. So you can kind of wander around it, decide where you want to pop in, pop in, and then you and the other staff there 
will run over and give a quick five-minute teach because all their games can be taught in five minutes, which I think is great. I also will second how great Joe Wiggins is. He's a really professional dude, and I have pitched a little bit with him, and I had a great experience. So I agree. They're a great company. Speaking of that, when I was pitching with Joe, too, if you're any designers listening, if you ever want to pitch the board game tables, that guy will put your game through the ringer. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way, though. He will make you think about things that you maybe didn't think about before, especially as me as a young designer. He made me think about my games, which I've been working on for sometimes years. And he gave me a perspective on it. And I really appreciate that because that's what, as far as how I take feedback, that's what I want. So if you're ever looking, if you have a game for board game tables, he's a great guy to have a look at your games. Busy guy, but great guy. But overall, I love board game tables as a company. Spent most of my time there. What were you doing most of the time at PAX, Andrew? We got to see each other, but in between that time, what were you doing? Uh, my goal was to pitch, and so I did pitch several times. But when I wasn't pitching, my goal was just to learn as many new games as possible. Just soak up the vibe, soak up the energy, and meet people who I'd known online and got to meet for the first time in real life. And we sat down and played some games, and so it was great. I got to meet up with a bunch of people from the podcast too, like David Turkop from Mighty Boards. Oh. I got to meet him. I, I love David. I love sitting with him. Such a good guy, just as good a guy in person. We got to sit. I just wanted to say hi to him. We talked for a little bit. He actually wanted to see some of my games, so we sat down and chat for that. But you know, we, we chatted for like 30 or 40, 30, 40 minutes about nothing just before the convention started. It's It was just great meeting him in person. I got to... You know, see you, of course. There's a couple other people, like the Level Up guys who we've already had on the show. Got yeah. to meet with them and catch up with them. I, I just love conventions. I love them. Let's talk about the games we played. And you played a lot more games than I did. I actually got to hang more in the RPG crowd because that's what my life, my, that's what my wife really loves. She loves RPGs. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of digging some of the indie RPGs that were there. And plus, at my game store, I get a discount, and there's lots of the games that were there already at my store. So I was like, I'm going to save my money if I really want it. But I will talk about a few games that aren't at my store yet. or some of the games that stood out to you? Well, one of the ones I was really looking forward to, and I'm glad I had the chance to play, uh, was the Joan of Arc Orleans Roll and Write game. Yes. Uh, I know that one came out recently. It's gotten some interesting things. I've, I've heard some really good things. And... As a person who plays and owns Orleone and actually has the expansion and stuff like that, I was wondering if this needed to be in my collection since I already have that. Uh, the resounding answer is yes. Um, for me, that game actually solves some of the issues that my wife and I have with Orleans. Not that they're big issues, it's still a great game. But there are some strategies that we both have figured out work and seem to work better than others. So it almost like leads to a universal path toward the end. And so it's really a matter of who does a better job finding that path. And I think that the roll and write took some of those aspects, changed them enough to make it interesting, but also took away that path aspect. For instance, when we play, it's almost a matter of whoever can get the more uh, wild card versions of the tokens, for instance, the monks, or if you can turn the scholar into a wild card, those are the strategies that end up feeling like they open things up. In this one, you start the game off with three monks, but using them costs you points. So you can convert any worker to a monk at any time, which makes them wild, but then you lose points. In success order, one point, then three points, then four points. So like it actually hurts to use them, which makes it more of a thematic, interesting process 
Um, but also they spread out the houses, the different businesses you can build. And actually, I really like how they differentiated how the engine can be built throughout because it's really about efficiencies, right? So whenever you're using the builder, you are basically engine building and making your engine more efficient. And so that leads to later parts in the game. But you can't spend the whole game building, 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 building. You have to build the few things you need and then power that through, which I think is a better, more interesting strategic process. I just, I really like this game. It's really cool. It's really fun. And I've been looking for a game that is this level of depth that I think I can take on my travels. I mean, it's, it's still going to have a decent sized box, but really and truly, if you take those sheets and you laminate them and you get a, a, a marker, you only have a deck of cards to bring with you and you're good to go. Like, I mean, the, the tokens and the grab bag, but those things are small enough that you can take with you. And I think I'm really excited about having this in my collection. Do I need to play the original Orleans to appreciate how good Joan of Arc is? You don't need to. And I would happily teach you the other one without teaching you the first one. But I do feel like the first Orleans was one of the master classes in bag building. So it took the idea of deck building, put it into a bag, and I think they're the ones who've done it the best. So... In this case, the, the roll and write version, you are not bag building anymore. Your bag is set, and it's just drawing out, and then it's drafting from what's drawn, which is different, but in the same way you get all the vibes, this is why you can have both in your collection. That's interesting, because I, I would some people would argue that Quacks of Quedlinburg is the quintessential bag building game. What makes you prefer Orleans over maybe some like Quacks? I think Quacks is a masterclass in push your luck, whereas okay. Orleans is more about the traditional Euro in the way that it's about utilizing your resources to make a more efficient use of them to get to a point. Quacks is all about the push your luck, and it's really good at that, but those are completely different fields. Well, awesome. So that was Joan of Arc, the Orleans Roland Wright. So... Going back to BoardGameTables.com, I had the opportunity to teach Basket Boss, which is their newest release, a lot. So Basket Boss is an auction game where you are trying to become the greatest manager for your respective teams and have the most impressive starting lineup at the end of six seasons. So it's an auction game where you're auctioning for players. You play over six rounds. Each round adds a little bit of different rules and... It honestly boils down to what I believe to be a resource management system where the resource is your players. You have these like long, thin cards that have different sections that have stars in them. And you put the players in these slots on your player board and throughout the game they're going to age. And you slide them in and based on the top row of where your player is, that's how much they're worth. So some players, they increase in stars as they get older, some drastically decrease. And so really... You're getting these advisor cards and using these round abilities to try to manage what players are going into your board and where they're staying and who's moving up or down. It's As far as auction games go, I think it's really good. The auction system isn't anything to drive home about, but the actual process of managing that starting lineup is really fascinating. And it's very satisfying taking those long cards and sliding them into the player board it provides a really good visual for the player to actually 
bring them into the experience. And this is actually a reprint from a game that came out a very long time ago from what Joe was telling me. I couldn't actually find the name of the older game, but apparently it was a basketball team management game that they brought back to life, developed it a little more, and then sold to and basically began selling it as Basket Boss. It was a big hit. Like, I was not, there was never a moment that I wasn't teaching Basket Boss or Kabuto Sumo with the next to me, but I was consistently teaching that game over and over again. And I got to tell you, I think that it's a really good sports game, and there are not too many of them out there. Yeah, I actually did a quick demo with my our friend Patrick, and uh, he really showed me what was great about this game, and I agree that the long cards and the way it's it's slid under the board and pulls out, and you can kind of get a, a quick vibe of that. But I think also what makes this great is it's sports adjacent. It's sports in a theme, but it's the kind of game that if you don't like sports, you're still going to like this game, and I think that's great too. It gave me the vibe of the networks, but in some mm. ways a little smoother. Like, a little softer, a little less cutthroat, a little more, even though it's an auction game, so you're either winning or losing the auction, but that felt like more of a strategic choice rather than a nasty choice, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it really does a good job of bringing that aspect to the forefront, like you were mentioning. And I really do think, like you said, sports people who maybe aren't board gamers can appreciate it because there's a bunch of, like, puns in there. Like, they have, like, Laban games... And all these ridiculous sort of tongue-in-cheek references to actual basketball players. A, a, a person who maybe plays sports and is what you want to play a game with them could get, for sure. Yeah. But, but that was Basketball. What else were you playing, Andrew? Well, you and I played a game together of Applejack. And yes, I, we did. Uh, this is one of those games that like, I kind of was on my radar because, of course, everything that Uwe does, I'm interested in. Um but also, this was one that I heard some mixed results about. So what did you think about this one? And I'll tell you my thoughts. It was very Uwe Rosenberg. It felt like one of his games after playing a couple of his designs. I liked it. I don't know if I would play it again. Because, I don't know. I think i just rather play something like Calico, mm -hmm. which gives me that hexagonal puzzle. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more satisfying to my taste. The economic engine that you're running is, for those of you who don't know, Applejack, what you're doing is you're trying to create an orchard that has a diversity of apples, but also connect different, basically, honey hives or you know, bees' nest together in order to create this ecological system of bees spreading pollen and getting nutrients from the apple trees, then spreading that pollen and giving the trees nutrients to help grow the apples. Mm -hmm. I did find the puzzle very interesting. Um, but there were just some things in the game that I wasn't too crazy about. I think the main problem I have was the drafting was a little eh for me. Because in the game, on your turns, you are following this little trail. And around this trail, different sections of the board that have a set of tiles, hexagon tiles, that you can choose to take. Either the one that your piece is on or the two next to you. And based on your turn order, you could get kind of screwed depending on what tiles were taken before you and you're left, left with something that is, I just think, less than stellar. I think what they were trying to, what, what I think they tried to do with this was turn this into, instead of a tactical game, turning into a more strategic game. Because you can actually plan your turns out multiple times in a row 
as you can see around the circle, where you're going to end up and which tiles you're going to have access to. Now, between now and then, they might take that tile, but then you'll know as soon as they take that tile, what tiles are left over that you have access to. And obviously, once it gets low enough, then you can refill the whole board and it's into that. So I actually appreciate the strategic aspect of this game, but I agree with you. The drafting left something to be desired. I almost feel like I would have rather it not dwindle and had a section of maybe four every single time, even when somebody took it, and then I could be able to plan better. Instead of as it dwindles down, it gets lesser and lesser. I only have one or two options before it gets refilled. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. If there was some way to make sure players had multiple options as they go along instead of being constricted by other players' decisions, it would make it a little better. There's a difference, I think, between you know a player taking a tile you want and then another tower placing you're like, oh, shoot, okay, well, now then, you know, a player taking a tile and that limits your decision pool. Yeah. And it just it just didn't leave a great taste in my mouth. I didn't mind it. And if someone asked me to play, like, I really want to play this, I would sit down with them so they could experience it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But we played a base version. Maybe the asymmetric version is a little better. There's, a, there's an asymmetric version of it. It's very possible. And I agree with you. Also, I'm not looking forward to playing this again, but there's no way I wouldn't say yes if somebody brought it out. Exactly. But that was Applejack, designed by Uwe Rosenberg. So, Andrew, you have a game on here that I was looking forward to hear you talk about, but I'm really sad that I didn't get a chance to play, and that's Beer and Bread. All Can right, you tell so, us a little bit about that? Yeah, Beer and Bread was actually my biggest surprise in this, because, well, I'm a, I'm a sucker for multi-use cards. So you tell me you've got a two-player multi-use card game about carbs and i'm kind of interested i, I love beer, <laughs> i love bread i love two-player games so this one hits all the boxes but once i started doing a little research on it i got a little discouraged in this one because mm. it's shared resources and it's drafting with an alternating drafting system so i wasn't sure if this is the because you try to do drafting two-player it's just weird it just doesn't work the way you want it to work more often than not. I mean, if you've ever played it's hard, Go, yeah. two players, it doesn't feel right. Like it just doesn't, it sucks. Thing else. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but when I got to play it, the, the rule book is actually a little complicated for a two player game because this game has a lot of things going on. There's a lot of moving parts. There's storage, but then also on the cards, you have engine building and the cards can be used for either the resource or the recipe you're trying to create, or the engine building at the bottom. And so, in order to really understand this game, the theme locks into it fairly solidly, but then also, every other round is either a fruitful round where you're drafting, or a, a low year, or a bad year, or whatever not, in which case you keep the cards in hand, and you can actually do plan your turn. So it it becomes a back and forth between the strategic and the tactical, which I've never seen before, and that's so interesting. Plus, the multi-use cards are actually intuitive once you've played a round or two. So when we played, we struggled for the first round, we struggled for the second round, then we said, okay, it started to click, let's clear the board, let's start over again, and that was a lot of fun. So I highly recommend this one. Uh, I cannot wait to get my copy, and I've heard through the capstone grapevine that has U.S. release on January 12th. So I have to wait to the new year to pick it up, but I'm excited to grab this one for my collection. 
I am so pumped for this game. I, I was so sad. I went to PAX specifically to find this game, and by the time I was able to get to Capstone, which was right across the hall, right across the hallway, not even the hallway, it was right across the aisle from <laughs> board game tables, they were out. Yeah, they sold out. It, it sold out super quick, and everything you're saying just sounds like, I mean, Capstone is like the complicated, like when I think of Capstone, I think of complicated, really meaty strategic Euro games. They have Arc Nova, they have <laughs> New York Zoo and things like that. And beer, I saw beer, but I'm like, this is my jam just for the reason you said. So yeah, if you get it before me, you know, I'm going to be jealous. I'm going to try to get as fast as I can. But Oh no, I've got, I'm going to have it. Just no question. Uh, Fair enough. I would have really liked to have had Scott Holmes sign it, but uh, outside of that, I'll be happy to have my copy whenever I get it. Yeah. Speaking of games selling out, by the way, uh, no surprise, Boop sold out. So um, yeah. Big fan of that game. I have his signature on the side of my box, so he I had him deface my copy, and I smuggled that home, and I'm very happy. Can we talk about Boot for just a small minute? If you want to, sure. I, I want to. I, I got to. I picked this up at my FLGS that I work for, uh-huh. and I played it when I got home from PAX, and boy, howdy, you were right. It is absolutely delightful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Smirk and Dagger hit it out of the park. They really Oh, did. absolutely, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is a... Uh, it's it's a rebranding of a game that the designer had designed before, but with the smirk and dagger smirk and I guess a smirk and laughter in this and smirk and laughter yeah. a sprinkle of magic, mm-hmm. and it, it's amazing because this was a themeless game for a long time from what yep. I understand. Yep. adding that cat theme just brought it to a whole different level. It's it's great. I loved it. I played it three times with my wife when we sat down and played it. Absolutely amazing. I cannot agree more, and I'm really happy and proud to uh, to know Mr. Brady himself. So yeah, it's great. So let's get into what really is the kind of the story we want to share about PAX, which was yeah. you and me got a chance to sit down and play a game. And we got to play with Patrick from Level Up and Brittany, who was volunteering at Arcane Wonders. Mm-hmm. We got to play the newest Friedman Freeze game called Findorf. Wow! Before we get into it, this yeah. is an aggressively Euro game. Oh, absolutely! It is beige beyond beige beyond beige. The components and are and green. Of course, it's free <laughs> free screen. It is like if you didn't know, like the difference between Power Grid and Fedorf, like they almost look exactly the same except for a picture and a title. It's it's crazy. We got to sit down, and I came in a little late because I was coming in from a pitch. But I got to sit down, and there was a, a gentleman, an enforcer there, trying to teach you guys, doing his best to teach you guys how to play um, Findorf. And I sat down, and we started to stumble our way through it together. Yep. And what made this a cool experience was that we slowly got to learn how to play this game and see the intricacies involved mm-hmm. as it unfolded. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I don't play too many dry euros like this. And so for me, it was a great experience, and I really, really enjoyed it because we got to say, okay, well, in the game, you're trying to build this little subsection of this place called Findorf, and as you keep building and getting peat, which is like the main manufacturing resource, and selling peat, gathering workers, and going around this line of engines that you're trying to build, yeah. you know, it starts to open up. It really does, and you get to see the magic happening between balancing the peat economy, which I thought was one of the more interesting parts of the game, and balancing how much income you could do to build the buildings. Everything connected very, very well, 
And it was just fun for us to like look in the rule book and see where we made mistakes. And it was nice because we we're all really chill. So if a mistake was made, we didn't go back to it. We say, okay, we'll keep moving forward. We'll keep doing that rule. It's fine. So the gameplay was interrupted. And so it was a really great time to sit down with you and all the people there and just experience this game together and learn together. And at the end, we had a really good understanding of what the game was. And if we were to play it again, how we would approach it differently. Yeah, absolutely. So, there was a time when I, I played my first card, and my first card was a mid-game card, and I didn't have any idea. So what I actually did was speed up the middle of the game for myself, but it set me back for the first part of the game. So obviously, when you go back to play it again, I won't do that again, and that put me in a hole. But at the same time, it also helped me once we got past that early game, it sped me into the later game, which is very interesting to see how it goes. Also, the... The building of the resources is interesting because it really is just the peat, but then also you have to manage the brick and then also the iron for the railing. And so there's a there's a train aspect here, which people who like train games are actually going to like that in this game. And then also there's a my favorite part of it actually is the the years and the historical buildings based on the years. So every time you build a building, it advances the timeline. And any building that is built prior to the timeline's tail um, actually gets a discount. So it helps make sure that buildings get built in an appropriate amount of time. And I think that's brilliant. That was a really good choice on uh, the designer's part and the team who developed in this game. I thought it, like you said, it made sense thematically. And it just helped players who may have been behind with some bad cards to catch up. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I lost the game horribly but I, at, at, I, I knew i was going to lose yeah which was fine but i felt compelled to run my own race and do my own puzzle and at the end of the game even though i lost i was satisfied to what i had done agree and i and i it was had me thinking about which is a great signing the game what i would want to do in the next game don't worry to change that now i don't think this is a game i would probably pursue and put on my shelf because it's just not the type of game I tend to play. But if someone said, Hey, we're going to play Findorf. I'd be like, absolutely. And I'll teach you how to play Findorf because this <laughs> might be, this might be your favorite, I would say beginner Euro. Yeah. Cause it's yeah. How did you feel about the overall experience? I liked it. I didn't love it, but I really do feel like there's an intriguing little engine and cleverness to this game that is worthy of pursuing. And I was happily, pleasantly surprised by a game that I looked at and thought, <laughs> this is going to be garbage. So uh, <laughs> I didn't, I don't think Friedman Fries makes bad games. So that's a poor judgment on my part. But at the same time, you look at that beige board with a little bit of brown and the, and the green around the outside and you just go, man, this game looks like it was designed 20 years ago and has missed the boat. And, uh, I, I say that pun with a little bit of meaning, but uh, <laughs> uh, that said, Patrick, who played with us, was infatuated with this game and cannot wait to play it again, and he was so excited about what this game was showing and doing in different ways. Oh yeah, I had that power grid aspect, but yep. on a much simpler and more approachable scale. So I can definitely see, knowing Patrick a little bit, why he would love that game. Speaking of Patrick, I want to mention one more game before we go start wrapping up this adventure. I want to mention Clank, an oldie but a goodie. I have never played Clank before, and I have been consistently told that I would like it, but I was hesitant because I don't like deck builders too much. I mean, my favorite deck builder 
before playing Clank was abandoning all artichokes because it was super simple. I don't like Dominion that much. I understand why people like deck builders. And it's nothing against them. It's just not my jam. But I got a chance to sit down and play Clank with Patrick. And you were able. And so I was like, hey, Andrew, you want to come play Clank with me and Patrick? And you're like, sure, yeah. Because I'd never played Clank before. And I sat down. And, oh my gosh, it was... I want to say the word is amazing. I loved it so much. Yeah. It is what I wanted deck building to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't a, here's a plethora of 14 options. Pick one, build a deck. It was, you are going on a journey. And as you go along, pick what you think is going to help you as the game changes. So it was kind of a tactical deck builder that still had elements of long-term strategies. That you could. Implement. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The deck building aspect is the long-term strategy, but what you do in that turn is the tactical. So it's the marrying of the two, which I think is impressive. It was, it was beautiful marriage. Absolutely beautiful. I was crying at the altar of this game. It was, it was so good. And I think that what I really enjoyed the most was the fact that the players set the pace, which you guys made very apparent to me. It's like, hey, the players set the pace of this game. And I was like, oh, well, what does that mean? And I got it. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to go down as far as I can. And try to get the most expensive loot. That makes the most sense. I'll have to spend some time doing it, but that's okay. But you and Patrick didn't go in that far at all. We're like, okay, well, we're out. Like, well, what do you mean you're out? There's still more treasure. <laughs> like, why didn't you just like, why didn't you grab a backpack and get more? It's like, well, because I want to get out. And I realized very quickly, like, oh, oh no, this is why he wants to get out because the dragon's coming and I'm going to die. And I did end up dying, but I had a great story come from that because I could visualize myself. I actually had a pretty good time getting out. I was one move away yeah, from were. getting out. I was one move away from getting out. That might have propelled me maybe a little bit. I, I still would have lost the game and leap. I would have done fairly well, I think. I was so close. I was going around this time. I was able to get all these movement cards that I had picked up, and I was sprinting my way through the dungeon. It was so thematic, and it came down to this one bag pull yeah. where it was time to – it was a clank happened. It's time to pull the bag, and Patrick pulls out six cubes. And it was black, 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 red and blue. One of those was my color. I died literally at the cave yeah. like entrance. It was so good. I, I didn't care that I lost. I was frustrated. And I did a like a like I did a like a wow, dang it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> But it was great. I, I enjoyed it. And you guys told me Clank in Space is better, so I'm probably gonna pick up Clank in Space because I feel like the game works well at two players too. Cause it's a race between two people and kind of a game of chicken. It feels like it's going to be like that. So I'm excited. I mean, did you enjoy playing Clank with, Clank with me and Patrick? Oh, it was great. Well, partly uh, I enjoyed the players more than the <laughs> game. Uh, but that said, I also want to say that I'm very curious and excited to see what Catacombs brings to it. Because, uh, you know, Clank, the original Clank felt really good and awesome. But it also feels a little stale because it doesn't change. Right? So I feel like you can have a set strategy that you're planning on implementing and you kind of can approach the game that way, and hopefully you learn to do different things and try different spot aspects, but it can also start to feel samey. So I want to see how it happens when the board is more sectional and you explore it as you go, so you have no idea what's in the darker part. you got to decide as you go when to turn around and come back, and I think that's going to be pretty cool. Cool. Well, that was Clank, the classic deck-building adventure. So, Andrew, you have one more game you want to talk about, which I am intrigued to hear about because I'm a big fan of the original game that this is based off of. So why don't you take a moment and tell us about this 
this little two-player game that was released. This little indie game. Indie game, yeah, no. It's uh, <laughs> Space Cowboys, it's Bruno Cathala, and it is Splendor Duel. So um, people who know me know that I play Splendor with my wife a lot. We play it two-player. We, we find it to be very tactical, very strategic. Um, it's a beautiful design. I don't love the theme. She does, but that works. Uh, but we like it enough as a two-player that when they said they were coming up with a two-player version, I was like, ooh, you can make the two-player game more interesting? Um, yeah, count me in. So that's awesome. And uh, I got to play it. And nobody taught me. I had to read the rulebook. But the rulebook's like three pages. So it actually only took me five minutes. And then a random stranger said, hey, you, are you learning that? Can I jump in and play? I said, absolutely. Come sit down. Uh, and it was great. We had, a, we had a really great time. What this one does differently is that as you're collecting the jewels, you can't just take the three jewels you want. There's a grid of jewels on the board, and you have to take three in a row, vertically, diagonally, horizontally, whatever it is. And when you take them off, those are gone. So now the next person has to take their three in a row, or even two in a row, or one in a row, or whatever, tactically how you want to choose it. But you can also get a new resource, which is pearls. And there are two pearls on the board. Once they're gone, they're gone. And those don't act as a wild. They are a different resource which can open up some more powerful cards. Also, the cards you're collecting aren't just about getting, you know, a red one that's permanently in your collection. There are some that either give you big points and no permanent collection bonuses, or they do some different interesting things. And I don't want to get into spoilers as far as this goes, but I think it makes the market a little more interesting than just collecting greens or blues or whatever to get what you need. Also, there's a thing called scrolls in the game, which are basically like future favors. So you can do these little extra bonuses with these, whether it be turn the scroll in and take any one tile from the board or any one jewel from the board, and then that can help you finish a card with this. But also, if I reset the board, if I get tired of what's available there, then I give you a scroll. So there's this interesting favor back and forth thing that goes on. Um, I'm very, very impressed with this one. I'm going to pick up a copy of this one, and I'm looking forward to having this in my collection. Uh, Excellent job, of course, Bruno, you're a master, so I'm not surprised, but uh, I was worried that this one wouldn't be better than Splendor, and I think it actually is for two players. Bold statement, because I actually really enjoy the two, a two-player game of Splendor a lot, so I'm interested to see, once I, I'm planning on playing this one, if I prefer it over, you know, base Splendor. So, good insights, though, because I'm interested in this one for sure. Well, listeners, that wraps up our deep dive into Pax Unplugged. Let's say we resurface really quick. Me and Andrew will give you some you know, thoughts and thoughts about what's going to happen in the next coming year with the Tabletop Summary Podcast, and we will see you on the surface. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. We've got some great guests lined up oh yeah for next year we're not going to announce anything yet just in case because you know people's lives are changing constantly schedules are changing but we had an opportunity decided to make some great creatives in the industry people who yeah. i want to bring on people who i would love to hear stories from what about you Pat, andrew oh yeah very much so and on top of that we're going to do a little bit of crossover work so we have already brought in some game designers we're going to get a few more coming in we're also going to reach out to some people who have some very 
uh, epic podcasts about the industry, and they're going to share some of their stories. So that's going to be great as far as that goes. So uh, the future is bright for this little fledgling podcast. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm, I'm happy to announce too that I was able to get a position editing a podcast for Stephen Bonacore as well. So you'll be hearing, hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more people like branch out. Basically, I'm doing editing for Board Games Insider, which is Stephen Bonacore's Ignacy Chevichek's podcast. And great show. He, yeah, great show. If you guys want to know about the business side of board games, awesome podcast. Stephen Bonacore and Ignacy do fantastic job explaining it. But they're going to be mentioning the podcast in every episode because I'm going to be doing the editing work for them. So hopefully that will give us a wider breath where we can bring more people to come in and tell stories. And I would love to honestly get Ignacy on one day if that's ever possible because he's just he's just awesome. I love hearing him talk about board games and his stuff. Well, he's also all about the story. That That's what his board games are. So, yes, please uh, twist whatever knobs and whatever <laughs> levers and whatever um, favors you need to call in. Let's make this happen. I'll try my best. If there is anybody you would like to hear more stories from, if there's a person you know who's a great creative in the industry or someone you think is doing something fairly interesting, feel free to reach out to us at tabletopsubmarine at gmail.com and suggest them. And we'll see if it's going to fit in our schedule. We'll take it into consideration because we want to get as many stories as we can out there. Also, listener, if you'd like to support us, the best way to do that is to like and share us on Facebook. We have a Twitter as well. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, we just want to get as many people to listen to these stories as we can and get as many people on to share stories as we can. We're trying to get on iTunes. I'm doing the best I can. Just be patient with me. I'm still trying to figure it out. Andrew's going to help me here soon. Well, listeners, as always, my name is Josh. And I'm Andrew. And this has been the Tabletop Submarine. Thank you.